looking at Titus today, chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. I'll read you this joke. If it goes wrong, we'll blame the author. A new pastor was asked to teach a boys' class in the absence of the regular teacher. He decided to see what they knew, so he asked who knocked down the walls of Jericho. All the boys denied having done it, and the preacher was appalled at, by their ignorance. At the next deacon's meetings, at the next deacon's meeting, he told about the experience. And then one of the deacons spoke up and said, no one, of the, no one knows who walked, I read it wrong. I even read it wrong. Not one of them knows who knocked down the walls of Jericho, he told the deacons. The group was silent until finally one, one of the deacons spoke up and said, Pastor, it appears this is bothering you a lot. But I've known these boys all their lives since they were born. They're good boys. I don't think they did knock the walls of Jericho down. I believe them. Let's just take up some money out of the building fund and fix those walls. Yes, all right. Blame the guy who wrote it. <laughs> Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. We're going to talk about imperatives today. An imperative is something that you need to do. It's imperative that you do it. There's not really another way to do it. When Jesus talked about going through Samaria, he said, I must needs go through Samaria. Now, there were other ways to get around Samaria, but he said he had to go through Samaria because there was a woman there right at the well. You know the story. Stand with me. Titus chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 5, and we're going to look at some imperatives. There are 14 imperatives in the book of Titus. You would maybe have an easier time remembering direct commands. 14 of these. And five of the, or six of them, excuse me, apply to Titus as the leader, the others to the, to other people. But there are six that apply to Titus as the pastor starting, uh, or going to straighten out of work on the island of Crete. Let's look at verse five, chapter one. For this cause left I thee in Crete that thou shouldest set in order the things which are wanting and ordain elders in every city. I need you to set in order. They're lacking some things, and I'm leaving you there to take care of this problem. Let's pray God bless us as we take a look in the book for a walk in the world that you'll help us to understand your word. And Lord, help me to be able to communicate this to the young believer, to the young learner, uh, and also to the mature Christian, that we'll all glean something, get something that helps us live our lives. Bless now, in Jesus' name, amen. Paul is writing to Titus. You may be seated. Paul is writing to Titus, a Gentile Christian. Now, when he was about to send Titus to Crete, in fact, one time the Pharisees came and said to Paul, we demand that Titus be circumcised. Paul said, no way, he's a Gentile, he doesn't need to be circumcised. See, the Judaizers continued to teach the importance of circumcision for people who came to know Jesus. They were wrong. No longer should someone have to be circumcised to be part of the family of God. If you're born again, you don't need to be circumcised. And so they were pushing that. Paul said no. When T Timothy came along, who was half Jew and half Gentile, Paul had him circumcised because he was going to minister to the Jews. Not because Paul believed that that had to be done for him to be part of the family of God, but because he didn't want him to be offensive to the Jews. So Timothy was circumcised. Titus was not. Now remember, Paul's calling, unlike Peter's, was to the Gentile. Peter was a minister to the Jews. Paul's calling was to the Gentiles. In fact, the first convert Paul led to the Lord was a guy by the name of Sergius Paulus. 
Sergius Paulus was his first Gentile convert. And after that, you'll note in Scripture that Saul begins to go by the name Paul. And so some believe he began to go by Paul because of that conversion of this Gentile. But either way, we know he's called to the Gentiles, and so he's sending Titus, Titus who had gone with him on his third missionary trip. Uh, he leaves him on the island of Crete, uh, the southernmost island in Greece, north of Africa, south of, uh, of, uh, of uh, Greece. Crete was about 140 miles long. At some places, only seven miles wide. Other places, um, 35 miles wide. Actually, I said 140, 160 miles long. And Paul is leaving him there. Why? Because they had doctrinal problems and spiritual problems. And so he has to leave him there. Now, Titus really meant a lot to Paul. He's mentioned 15 times in Scripture, 13 times in other books besides Titus. So Titus meant a lot to Paul. In fact, if you listen to what Paul says about him, he says, I have no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus. Later, he says, I was comforted by the coming of Titus. He says, for the joy of having Titus. We desired Titus. All these times he mentions Titus. He says, he's my fellow helper. He says, we walk in the same spirit. He talks about 14 years later, Titus being with him. He calls him his own son after the faith because he had obviously led Titus to Jesus. So Titus was a Gentile who meant a lot to Paul. I mean, he meant a lot to Paul. In fact, he's often overlooked in Scripture. We talk a lot about Paul's other traveling companions, Luke and others, Silvanius. But here's Titus. Paul says so much about Titus. What a great man he was. And he's leaving him here, and he's writing this book, at the time of his second, uh, between his first, excuse me, in between prison appearances. He was in prison in Rome and somewhere around A.D. 64. 64 years after the duration of Christ, he writes this book. And he's writing to Titus. It's not a letter to a church as many are. It's a personal letter to Titus. And he's writing him. Why? Well, verse 16 says, They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him. We all know people like that, don't we? People who profess they know God, but they don't live for God. I mean, churches are full of them. Society's full of them. And really, they're hypocrites. All church is comprised of some hypocrites, and maybe most of us at times are hypocritical. But when we profess one thing and live another, we're hypocrites. We're play-acting. That's what the word hypocrite means. And so he's writing... Titus, and he's wanting him to go there and straighten this out. Look in verse 5 again. For this cause, this is the reason I'm leaving you in Crete. And he tells him the first, first imperative here is to set in order. Set in order. Now let's go over to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And let's see another way that word is translated. Hebrews chapter 12. And verse 13. I want to always do this at least one time so you understand one Greek word in your Bible can be translated a dozen different ways. Here the word translated set in order in Hebrews 12, 13 is translated make straight. It says here um, in Hebrews 12, 13, let me find the right verse, and make straight paths for your feet. Make straight. Here's a Hebrew word, set in order, elsewhere translated, make straight. You know the Greek word. You know the Greek word, it's the word ortho. What does an orthodontist do? 
Straightens out Dan's teeth. What does an orthopedic do? Straightens out the broken arm. That's the word. He said, I'm leaving you in Crete to set in order. To set in order the things they're lacking or wanting, the things that are missing. You need to go there and straighten this out, is what he's saying. That's how we'd say it today. I'm leaving you at Anchor Hope, Brother Dan, to straighten out the mess. Now, there's no mess here, okay? I'm just saying that's what God is saying through Paul to Titus. You're going to create to straighten that out because they're living bad, calling themselves Christians, but they had no testimony. So he's leaving him there to straighten that out. Now, it's interesting because the grammar here is a one-time act. In other words, we'll find several of these imperatives are something he had to continue to do. But this is a one-time act. In other words, he had to go in there and he had to take charge and straighten out this mess. It's sort of like if you come into a church and you have a Jezebel who's dividing the church. Go in there, Brother Dan, and you straighten that out. It's a one-time deal. You bring Jezebel before the church. You tell her she's a rattler. If she doesn't repent, she's to leave the church. That's tough duty. That's sometimes what pastors have to do. You didn't know that we had to do that, but that's part of being a shepherd. You know, the shepherd sometimes had her disciplined sheep, didn't they, to get him to follow. Or if you have someone immoral and you have to bring them before the church and say, you either repent or I'm going to stand up before the church and tell everyone what you've done. That's what he had to do. He had to go in there and deal with something one time, straighten it out. Boy, I wouldn't want that calling. But there's been times in my ministry in my life where I've had that calling. <laughs> had to go in and straighten a mess out. That's tough to deal with. So he says here, I want you to set an order. Now you think of Titus and what a quality person he was. We find him in 2 Corinthians 7 comforting the brethren. That seems to be the opposite personality of someone who has to straighten out a mess. We also find him collecting an offering for poor people later in 2 Corinthians. Now he's having to confront the Cretans. Different things, but he was a versatile guy. And so Paul is leaving him there to straighten out a mess. Notice also in verse 5, the second imperative that Titus has to do, set in order the things they're missing or lacking or wanting, and ordain elders in every city. So you got to go around this island, you got to ordain elders all over the island. And this is not a one-time act. He had to continue to set aside elders. Now, here we know this means, metaphorically, uh, the word ordain means to set aside. When we uh, ordain someone, we set them aside metaphorically. Not physically, but metaphorically. We set them aside because they're going to have a special duty or responsibility. And this word, elders, you know the Greek word. It's the word presbyteros. And we get our word presbyterian from that. All right? So he says, I want you to go there and ordain elders all over the place. That's a big job. It wasn't a one-day thing. It wasn't a one-time thing. He had to go from city to city and ordain elders. They needed leadership in churches. They needed pastors. They needed other people to help pastors. And so he's going around ordaining elders. Then, uh, verse 7, we drop down and we see, uh, verse 6, the qualifications here of an elder. Blameless, husband of one wife. Now, the word elder really refers to a mature man, the dignity of the office. Where the word bishop's a different Greek word, it refers to the oversight. 
In fact, the, the etymology, and that's a big word, forget that. Some people say sometimes I'm too complicated. The history of the word. How did that word come about, the word bishop? Originally, there were building inspectors. They'd come in and they'd look everything over, make sure everything was right. But in the spiritual context, now that's what pastors are, the bishops. That's really what I am, a bishop. We don't use that term today because so many weird denominations use it. In, in Baptist churches, we, we call him pastors, you know, pastors. And so I'm a pastor, but actually technically I'm a bishop. And so we, the bishop is referring to the function of the oversight. And the word is used in Acts and also here they're used simultaneously. Notice if a, it says ordain elders, it gives the qualifications of verse six, then verse seven says for a bishop. So he's talking about an elder and a bishop the same way because they're one and the same, just a different uh, from a different perspective. And the word bishop's another Greek word, you know. It's episkopos. We get our word episcopalian from it. Now you know that, right? See, you know all these Greek words. And so we have the the episcopalian and the Presbyterian, the elder and the bishop. Now there are three different types of church government today. Did you know that? You have churches that are run by a board of elders. Now, in Baptist churches, we're afraid of the word elder for some reason, so we ordain deacons, and then we get the aged men, and they make decisions. It's the same thing. All right, we have a bunch of older deacons. Not all of them are that old, but I really value their input and their opinion because they have age, and I respect age. And in the Bible, they respected age, didn't they? There's the word. And so we're thankful for the wisdom we get from older people. I, I've, I've received some of the greatest wisdom in my life from people who I didn't think had, a, had anything to say. Sometimes we don't want a voice from someone. We have all our ideas. We're young. We're in charge of the world. And we don't need any input. We make some of the dumbest decisions and mistakes you can make. Listen to your elders, all right? If you're young, listen to people. When I was young, people would say, well, one day you'll learn. And then I did learn. One day you'll understand. Now I understand. And they were pretty wise back then. So the younger generation now needs to listen to the older people who have wisdom. But some churches are governed by a board. They have a board of elders who decide everything. I know there's some Baptist churches, Woodland Park is an elder church. There's a lot of elder rule churches, and then and then there are others that are governed by deacons, but they have aged deacons making decisions. I think when we have deacons making decisions, they ought to be older men, because that 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 age and maturity is so helpful. So you have elder-run churches where the board decides everything. Oklahoma's Baptist Church, church I saved in. I only was there a few years. We went to another church after we found a good youth group, but. Uh, we, they had elders, and uh, Craig Farrick, a dear friend of mine, was telling me how they, uh, how they operate. They said, well, our pastor doesn't get a vote in the meeting. And I said, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. The overseer can't say anything? Well, they, they can say something, but they can't vote because we don't want them influencing the other elders. And I'm like, okay. They definitely had a board-run church. The second type of church government, actually we're not giving these in any specific order, is the church that has the priest who decides and runs everything. Now we're all priests today, aren't we? In Christ, the Bible said we're priests in Christ. But the Episcopal Church is a perfect example. They have a, a, a priest and he decides everything. He doesn't need uh, input. He's, he's the answer man. It's sort of like the Catholic Church. I, I use the word church there loosely because the church is a body of believers, which is headed by Christ, but the Catholic Church has a pope. 
And he, he does everything, you know. I, I told you that joke about getting on an airplane and, and the uh, guy got on the airplane and sat next to a priest and he said to the priest, what causes arthritis? And the priest got angry and said, drunkenness, immorality. He was agitated by the guy bothering him all the time. And then later the priest felt bad and said, why do you ask? He said, I, I'm sorry about that. He said, well, I read where the Pope has arthritis. Uh, and so, yeah, but, but we know, and the Catholic denomination will say, one man's in charge in the local assemblies, we call them loosely assemblies, because we're, we're not sure they're born again unless they've trusted Jesus as a Savior, right? You have a priest, and they are definitely the leader and in control. And the third type of government is the congregational, and there's actually churches, the congregational churches. Congregation votes on everything. They vote on everything. I mean, uh, you know, let's, let's, uh, you know, fix this or buy that, and you have to have a vote every week because the congregation makes all the decisions. You say, Brother Dan, which is the best? Actually, a combination of all three. Did you know that? What did, what did they tell the, what did the apostles tell the church in Acts? Choose out among you deacons who can take care of the money and the widows. We have to spend our time in the Word. So a wise church has the uh, people involved in making decisions. I, I don't think it's ever wise. In fact, it's unscriptural for a pastor to pick all his deacons. Let's see, I want him and him and him. They'll all be yes men. They all like me. They'll do what I tell them. That's not scriptural. The church actually had to select the deacons to do that work. You know, we, we have the umbrella of finances in the Bible, and under that we put the building, and money applies to so much, doesn't it? And so the deacons are very valuable to a church, and so you have the congregation choosing the deacons to represent them and make a lot of these decisions, and the deacons took care of so many things in the church. Thank God for the congregation. Thank God for the deacons. But the pastor is the spiritual overseer. He's the one who has to say, hey, there's something wrong here. We need to deal with this situation, but he should not be uh, so authoritative that he takes control of things that the Bible doesn't tell him to take control of. I told you years ago, we were building a new building in Okinawa, and they said, well, pastor needs to be in charge of the building committee. And I said, what are you talking about? I didn't say it like that, but in my mind, I thought, what's wrong with you? I don't know anything about building. We got a, we got a deacon member who's an engineer and an architect. Why would I be in control of everything? And that's the problem. Sometimes pastors can be in control of everything. I mean, you can't do anything in the church without his approval. Well, let me tell you something. We have a whole bunch of brilliant minds. We want them to be involved. <laughs> Amen. So the best is a mixture of, 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 of each of these types of church government. And you see it in Scripture. You see it in Scripture. I don't think Paul ever asked the deacons what to preach. And I don't think he ever ordered people around and told them who to ordain as his deacons. Paul started, you know, 51 or 52 churches, so he knew all about church government. But you find all these. And that's not the, really the point of my message today, but we know that we find here, Titus is told, first of all, to set in order, straighten out this mess, then ordain deacons, and then in verse 13 of chapter 1, verse 13 of chapter 1, he says here, this witness is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply. 
so sharply rebuke. What's he talking about here in verse 13? We'll back up to verse 10. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially them of the circumcision, meaning Jews. There's many Jews on this island, in this church, that are, are causing problems, whose mouths must be stopped, who upset, subvert is the word, upset whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for money, for filthy lucre's sake. I mean, these Jews are messing families up, messing the church up, all for money. And one of themselves, even a prophet, he's actually a guy by the name of Epimendes, he's a Cretan poet, he said this, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, which means savages, and slow bellies, which means lazy gluttons. So one of their own, a Cretan said about his own people on this island, the Cretans are liars, lunatics, and lazy. <laughs> you know, that's not very good, you know, coming from one of your own. But he said that. And he said, this witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply. You know, you have to sometimes take the sword of the Spirit, which is has a two-edged sword, sharp, very sharp. The Bible said it will divide the soul and the Spirit. And you have to sometimes put it to work, and it has to deal with people. So they have, so they become sound, the last line of verse 13, sound in the faith. The word sound, if you want to know, is our word hygiene, healthy in the faith. And so we have to be, and this is a repeated action. In other words, one job that Titus had to do was continue to teach sound doctrine, continue to rebuke sin, sin of bad doctrine, the sin of these loud mouths, lazy slobs, savages in the church. And sometimes that's a difficult job for a pastor to sharply rebuke. I was reading an illustration. This was really interesting to me, and I'd heard this years before, and I Googled it this week to look it up, about people who take a, a, a knife. To kill wolves, they'll take a knife, and they'll cover it in blood, and then they'll freeze it. And this, they talked about the Eskimos here, and other illustrations talked about the American Indian, the Native American, and they'll freeze it in blood, then they'll add more blood and freeze it, and they'll keep making it so that knife is just covered in blood. Some actually would take a, a soaked sponge of blood and slide it over the blade, and they'll drive that blade down into the ground. So the wolf comes along and begins to lick that blood. Before he knows it, his tongue is cut, and he keeps licking his own blood, and it actually kills wolves. Now, that's I've got the story. You can have it. You can read it online. Fascinating to me. But what is happening? The wolf doesn't realize it, but he's killing himself. Peter tells us in one of his epistles, dedicated to false doctrine, that false doctrine will kill a church. I mean, a pastor has to be a teacher-preacher. It's not enough to entertain people. You know, I could do cartwheels. No, I couldn't do cartwheels anymore. Handstands? No, I really couldn't do anything much anymore. But if I tried real hard to entertain you, maybe I'd keep your attention and you'd leave here maybe thinking that illustration was great. But if you aren't learning the Word and marking your Bible, something's wrong with me. I am supposed to teach. The pastor teachers, one and the same. And you are to sit under me because you are learning and you're growing. Did you know learning and growing are the same as you learn Scripture? And you, as scriptures in your heart, you hide it in your heart that you might not what? Sin against thee. So as you learn and scripture, and then sometimes you're learning, you say, you know what? I didn't realize I'm wrong. 
uh, this morning. You don't have to embarrass people to point out that they're wrong. You have a visitor and you know it's the town drunk. You don't need to preach on drunkenness. Just preach what God gave you and let the word do the job. It'll cut sharply. You see, we don't have to single people out, but we have to teach and preach God's word. And so here he is told here to speak soundly in chapter two, verse one. But speak thou the things which become what? Sound doctrine. Doctrine is important. And if you don't, false doctrine will hurt the church. Speak soundly. Later in verse 15, the last line, he says, let no men despise thee. Talking to Titus. Remember what he said to Timothy? Let no man despise your youth. Here he says to Titus, let no one reject you. Despise you means to ignore your authority. You're a spiritual leader. You're going down there to straighten out a mess. And you need to set things in order. Set aside some other men to help lead. And you you need to speak soundly. You need to teach them, obviously, sound doctrine. Leadership's important. I love 1 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 32. Let me read this verse to you if you have time to get over there, but we'll be right back. Hold on, my fingers are doing the walking. 1 Chronicles chapter, uh, what did I say, 12, 32, and I went too far. But I want to read you this verse, and it's important for you to get this. It, it says here in 1 Chronicles 12, 32, And the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, One thing about being any kind of a spiritual leader is we have to understand what's going on in the world so we know how to deal with it and how to prepare our people for it. And this next thing he tells them to do falls right in line with this. What's going on in our world right now? Right now, anarchy. We're a republic. Did you know that? We're not a democracy. We talk about democracy a lot because it's part of being a republic, but a republic is actually being governed by laws for things to be done in order and for the laws to control. And now we're ignoring laws. I saw a great sign the other day. It said, due to the the COVID uh, virus, looters, please stay at home and loot in your own places. Uh, you know, but we have all this anarchy right now, and that's the thing. Democracy, it's, it's majority rule. Well, what happens when the majority's wrong? We're a republic. You have laws to say to the majority. It's not this way. Breaking in places and stealing everything because you don't like what happened to somebody else. You're just taking advantage. You don't care that much about that person. If you did, send him money or help him with his defense or whatever. But, you know, all this stuff that's going on. The next point he makes is look at chapter 3, verse 1. He says for Titus to remind you, the people, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers. Remind them, and this is constantly remind them, again, repeated action, to be in subject Now, how is that translated? Look at chapter 2 and verse 5. We find the same Greek word. Talks to older women saying, teach to the younger one, verse 5 in chapter 2, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands. You don't like that one, do you? Well, the men do. But obedient to their own husbands. So here, he says, remind them constantly to be obedient, to be in subject to principalities. What's the word principalities? It's simply our Greek word, and you know this word, the word arch. Archbishop, archangel. 
So be obedient to those in authority. All right? And he repeats it. Look at verse 1 again. And powers. The word powers is not the word dynamite like you find in Acts 1.8. This is the other word that means authority. We are to be submission and obedient to those in authority, including policemen. Now, you'll say amen to that, but I'm not done today. When a policeman pulls someone over and says, keep your hand on the steering wheel, and the people are reaching for something in their car, keep your hand on the steering wheel. If people would just obey the police, a lot of this would be cut down. I know there's been 26 uh, black people killed by police that were unarmed, and I think some of the police are dumb and do some terrible things. I I applaud that, amen, that they're wrong. But do you know how many of those would be avoided? If we would just obey the officer, I'll tell you a funny story in a minute. Now, a hundred and some unarmed white people were also killed last year. So if you want to go looting, let's set up something this week and hit Fort Oglethorpe. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) My point is that so much of what's going on in our world would be avoided if we just obeyed people in authority. Now, Brother Dan, what about when our government tells us to sin? Then we don't obey them. Let me give you an example. Acts chapter 5. They told Peter and Paul, stop preaching. What did they say? We're going to obey God rather than man. So if our government, like the Chinese people, think about Chinese Christians. They're told they have to abort every baby after the first one. How would it be? What would it be like to be a Chinese Christian? They have to disobey that. There's no way they should kill their babies. However, you should pay taxes. Don't use that. Had a guy working in my house. He said, I don't pay taxes anymore. I don't like what the government's doing with my money. I said, well, Jesus told them to obey, give to Caesar that which was Caesar's, and Caesar's a whole lot worse than any president we've ever had. So we still have to pay our taxes. So don't use that to not obey the government what you don't want to obey them on. If the government gives us an imperative, a direct order to do something sinful, we're not obeying that. If I'm told that my preaching is hate speech, I'm not going to change the way I preach to satisfy the government. All right? I... uh, Years ago, this is a funny story, we were up in Virginia. My son's up there, he remembers this. We went up there, and my daughter, you know, she's not up here. I gotta, she's not here, but I was gonna, she was with us, and she's Filipino, of course, and I had my four sons, who are naturally born to us, but we adopted Liz, and so we're up there, we're having a good time as family, because my son Jeremy's in ministry up there to the Native Americans, but anyway, so there's an escaped convict from Nashville with a teenage girl on the loose in the area. So they had all these police and all these people looking for this escaped convict. He was from Tennessee. Well, we have Tennessee tags. So we um, go get some fishing licenses, daily licenses. We're going to fish. And my son, Isaiah, is messing around. And uh, he... Um, he, he gets, he, we didn't have room in our car. We, we picked up our daughter. Uh, my son came with his little car and picked up my daughter and I. We, my daughter and I were walking and waiting for them to pick us up. So neighbor community people saw this guy and this little Asian girl and thought, that's suspicious. And so along come my sons and they, they pick us up. And we didn't have room, so my son jumps in the trunk. Closes the trunk. So we get to the place where we're buying our licenses, and he jumps out of the trunk and acts like he's been held captive or something. We're getting our license. We're not thinking anything about it. 
We're driving back towards the lake, and all of a sudden, police are coming from everywhere. There's rural retreats, city police, the Virginia State Police, what in Virginia? The um, county police. Above us is a helicopter. They're coming from all angles and pulling this Tennessee family over because this suspicious man who was walking with this girl, someone's in the trunk and all, they're getting all these calls. So what do I do? All right, I, without listening, I jump out of the car to tell them that I'm a pastor. My kids said, Dad, do you know they had rifles from the helicopter on you because the ATF people were there? I said, I'm a pastor, it's okay, and they're giving me commands, and I'm like, this is ridiculous, I'm a pastor? Well, they don't care about what I say. I've kidnapped a little girl and escaped from prison. <laughs> this is true. My son who's sitting up there wrote in the guest book in this little uh, Dutch pantry, he wrote that guy's name as a joke. So then after we got back, he said, oh, no, we, I need to go take my name out of that book because they probably have a camera, and they're going to think I'm this guy. What was the guy's name, Daniel? Benjamin Shook. You can Google that. So I'm Benjamin Shook. I've kidnapped a girl. The police are all over me. What, wouldn't it have been better if I just obeyed? Stayed in my car. Not got out to tell him I'm a preacher and get my track. That was dumb. <laughs> Paul says to Titus, teach them to obey all those in authority. And it saves so much trouble if we just listen and obey. So he says, teach them to submit to authority. Finally, chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, we, we need to close. But avoid foolish questions. And so I have here shun contention. Avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law. For they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is a heretic, after the first and second admonition, reject him. So we avoid, we shun contention. And again, this is an imperative. Shun contention. The Jews loved to argue genealogies. The Greeks studied mythology. And he said, this is not helpful to be arguing and have contention, arguing and fighting over all these things that aren't important. Sometimes in churches we can argue over things that aren't very important. And churches have divided over the silliest things. You know that. How many churches do we know that have split up in Lansing, Michigan, Dr. Wearsby is a good friend of my pastors. He'd come to our church every year, Warren Wearsby, and they were driving on a street over from ours and it had Church of God. And about four or 500 yards down, Church of God number two. They both were one at one time and split. And we can laugh about the Church of God this morning, but what about the Baptist? <laughs> yeah, we do the same thing. We need to avoid those kinds of things. Avoid those things. Back now to verses 10 through 12 as we close. Here he is told to go there. Why is he having to do all this? Because there are a bunch of out, unruly, big mouths, Jewish people who need to be shut up because they're messing families and churches up because they want money. And that, that what their own people say about them is they're liars, lunatics, and lazy. You know what? Verse 16 says, They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient unto every good work. You know, if you're here today and you profess to know Jesus Christ, live like it. 
If you're here today and you're not saved, I'd come forward this morning and say, Pastor, I, I need to be saved. That'd be an awesome thing. But if you're here and you're a Christian, live like it. You know what the word Christian means? Christ-like. Don't tell people you're a Christian if you don't live like Christ. Because you're a hypocrite, and that's a bad testimony. And that's what these people were. And, and we laugh at these people, and we, we have a good time in church studying the Word, but the fact of the matter, sometimes it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. If it's you who needs to work on your testimony, you need to say to God, help me, God. I need you to confess to God that you've been a failure in living the life. And commit yourself to the Lord day by day, confessing every time you do wrong and asking God to help you to live right. I don't know your heart, but God does. As we pray today, examine your heart. Is your heart right with God? And deal with whatever it is the Lord's laid on your heart. God bless us. We thank you for the imperatives, the orders you gave Titus to carry out. And Lord, I pray that as a leader here, I can carry out these orders when necessary, but God, help us all to remember we work as a team. And we're so blessed with our great deacons and our people. What a wonderful experience it is here to preach the freedom and liberty I have. And, and God, I just pray that we will be what we ought to be. Listen to what Titus is told and apply it to our church, to our lives. Help us to not be like the Christians, Lord. Saying we're Christians, but denying the power thereof and not living the Christian life. Bless us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.